Well, don't you ever wish that your life was like an episode of The Brady Bunch? Where every conflict, pain, and betrayal was neatly wrapped in a bow in 22 minutes or less, right? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Well, as I was studying 2 Samuel 19 this week, I was thinking of one particular episode that reminded me of how much I'd like that. And it was the one, and, and okay, I am of the generation where we actually sat on the sofa and watched them in prime time on Friday night. Some of you are of that generation, no reruns for us. We actually saw them the first time they came out. But anyway, here's one episode that reminded me of 2 Samuel 19. It's the episode, see if you remember it, where uh, Marsha comes home and she has begun to date the captain of the basketball team. The only problem is he has just aced out Greg for that position. So what does Greg proceed to do? He brings home the head cheerleader who has just bumped Marsha from that spot. And she does the whole F-F-F-I-L-O-O-O-R-E, Fillmore Junior High. Remember that cheer in the living room, right? Which gets Marsha's blood boiling. And pretty soon the two of them are going at it, brother and sister fighting with each other, just like that. And what comes next? What always comes next? Mr. and Mrs. Brady walk in, right? And they take them to dad's study. You know, you're going to have a heart-to-heart when you walk into dad's study. And as usual, in two minutes, they're laughing, joking, and walking out for a piece of pizza together while Alice is, you know, throwing a snarky comment or two at them on their way out. Don't you just wish life was like that? Oh, the bliss of 70s TV, right? Where in 22 minutes, it was all solved. Well, sadly, when our siblings hurt us, insult us, and yes, sometimes even intentionally stab us in the back, an aw shucks on a pizza pizza isn't usually going to cut it for us. Because we're much more apt to (sighs) grumble our way through that and have a more difficult time overlooking the offense or the poke in the eye that our siblings just gave us. We would much rather hang on to it a while, stew about it, swim in it for quite some time. But if you're a real Christian here, When we turn the lights out at night and you're sitting there in the dark, just you and God, it bothers you because you know it isn't right. You know that siblings who aren't getting along is not what would please our father. You know that he's not standing on the sidelines of your life going, a girl, you go girl, when you're warring with your brother or sister in Christ. He doesn't like it. And ladies, it feels bad because it is bad. And so today, God, our Father, is going to take us into his study. And his study is going to be in 2 Samuel 19. And he wants to intervene in our lives so that we can be more like Greg and Marsha Brady in our next conflict. If you're not in 2 Samuel 19, I'd invite you to turn there now. Because we're going to find that David's going to go home. And when he goes home, he's going to fix some things that are broken there. Let's remember what's happening. Absalom has um, staged a coup, and David has been run out of town. And remember, Absalom is his son. This is quite the painful betrayal. And he's run for his life. In last chapter, Absalom's grabbed troops from all over Israel and come to meet up with David's men. And they fought one another, brother versus brother, and thousands have died. And in the chaos that ensues, Absalom is killed. And in that moment, okay, the rebellion is pretty much squashed. The trouble is just because Absalom is gone doesn't mean it's over. There's an aftermath to deal with. And that's what David's going to be dealing with, the aftermath today. Because damage has been done. People have been hurt. Relationships are strained. Just because he's dead doesn't mean it's over for everyone there. Family member has fought against family member. Lines have been drawn in the sand. And in in days reminiscent of the Civil War where brother was fighting against brother, now David's walking into that to go take his throne. Oh, happy day. But he has to deal with all of that in order to get the kingdom functioning again. It's a tough time because just because Absalom's gone doesn't mean there won't be any fallout. In fact, as we tune into the episode today, the first thing we find is they're fighting, okay? 
starting in verse 9. It says, And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? They're arguing about bringing David back to the throne, okay? Absalom is dead, and the northern tribes in particular are happy to put David back on the throne. But for some reason, this south is not too keen on it. The southern two tribes are not too keen on it. So the north starts trying to refresh their memory about all that David has done and trying to convince them to get behind them and get on board of this. Verse 11 continues, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. These two men, they were loyal to David. In fact, they wanted to leave Jerusalem with David when he took off. But at David's request, they actually remained behind. David says, we need you to stay here. We need you to protect the ark. We need worship the Lord to continue on. And I'm going to have your sons, you know, do the covert undercover operation and be my spies and give me intel back and forth during the crisis. That's these priests here. Then in verse 11, David says to these priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? You're my family, David's saying. You're my tribe, you're my people. How come you're not behind this? Um, and then David has another idea, another idea that he hopes will sweeten the pot and seal the deal for getting the nation back together. In verse 13, he says, say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more so if you are not my commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the commander of Absalom, the enemy, quote unquote, army. He was the head guy of their military who have just fought against David and his men in the very last chapter and led the rebellion here that killed thousands. <sighs> David's extending an olive branch out to them and saying, okay, I'll take you, even though you're Absalom's head guy, I will take you and make you my commander-in-chief. Wow, that is big, you guys. Think about what that was like, that olive branch. Well, verse 14, it says, because of this decision, he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And that was it. A united kingdom has begun. Why in the world would David do this? I mean, come on, this is a huge concession. He's just made the enemy's general, commander-in-chief, his commander-in-chief. Why would he make such a concession? One reason, he wanted peace. He wanted to restore their relationship back together. He wanted to glue things back together, and he was willing to take the hit to make that happen because David strongly desired peace and he strongly desired to be reconciled to them. And that's what we need to do too. Point number one is gonna be we need to strongly desire reconciliation. Strongly desire reconciliation. Now, the reason I chose the word reconciliation is because the dictionary defines it as this. Accepting or resigning yourself to something not desired in order to win others over. Accepting or resigning yourself to something that is not desired in order to win others over. This is exactly what David does here. He doesn't wait for them to show some kind of remorse. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He doesn't wait for them to initiate a conversation. He doesn't wait for them at all. He makes the first move. In fact, as we're going to see, he's going to make all the moves. He hears they're fighting, and they're fighting about him, mind you. He hears them discussing his track record. He hears them hesitating. I mean, all of those things usually would make us run away, right? Not walk in there and go, oh, let me have a solution here. They're talking about him when he walks in and makes the first move, okay? He runs down there, and he goes to them. He recruits the priests to help them. He talks to their leaders. He gives them counsel. Then he offers a job to Amasa. He does everything here to bring about the compromise that is necessary to restore peace to the nation. He's making all the moves. Oh, 
That's hard, isn't it? Okay, so what's up with this whole north-south thing? I mean, I thought the south was David's people. Why are they the ones having a problem, okay? The north is all for David being king. The south isn't. Why would that be? Here's some things I could think of. First of all, well, it's David's family. It's David's tribe. It's where Jerusalem is. But that means it's also where Absalom was. It's where Absalom was located and probably had his strongest foothold. Think about it. Absalom's been sitting. We heard this a few chapters ago. Absalom sat in the city gates for four long years. What was four years ago? 2015. I don't know. What were you doing four years ago? Different than you are now, a lot of you. That's how long he sat there. He listened to their problems. He showed concern. He was like, oh, this is how I would do it if I was king. Oh, David, my dad's just not doing as good a job as I would be doing. And he stole their hearts in the South, in that location. It makes sense that they would be the most apt to be behind Absalom. They also were family members, which means they probably would recognize David and Absalom walking down the street. If they didn't have their whole entourage and they weren't dressed like the king, they were just normal people and they were walking down the street, these are people that would have known who David and Absalom were. They were their closest confidants and people. And that's where Absalom had the strongest foothold, which makes David's actions even more honorable, doesn't it? This is his family, his friends, quote unquote, his kin, and yet still, he doesn't let his feelings about it dictate his actions. It makes it even bigger, the concession that he made here. He knows that the kingdom needs him to suck it up, frankly. He needs to sacrifice for the sake of the nation. So he takes the hit, he makes the move, he puts out that olive branch to them and initiates a peaceful solution. Let's take a minute and talk about David for a sec. I think sometimes we look at these Bible characters and we think of them way too clinically. You need to remember, David's not a machine, he's a person. Have you ever read the book of Psalms? This guy's a person. In fact, he's a very sensitive, emotional man, and yet he sets it aside. The Psalms that you love are David pouring his heart out because you think, wow, he's saying what I say, right? He's not a machine, he's a person. He's a man who has been smacked around. He, he personally was the target of their criticism. He was the victim of the betrayal. And not just Absalom's, mind you. He was the victim of the betrayal of all the people who followed Absalom, who by the way, are not dead and they're all sitting around the table with him, and they're all in the grocery store where he shops, and they're all in the city square. All those people that supported Absalom are still there. He must have been reeling from it. Just take a minute to think about must, what it must have been like. Don't think of this clinically. Think of this humanly. He's got all these arrows sticking out of his back. Surely he was feeling horrible about this. And in his spot, we might be tempted to say, just give the job to somebody else, right? Remember these people he loved, he knew, he probably went to their birthday parties. He'd been risking his life for 20 years, his life for 20 years to keep them protected. He invested them and cared for them. This was a big thing. And yeah, of course, his betrayer was out of the picture, but his competence, his motives, and his character were being questioned by all the people who still remained. And then his betrayal was not in private. It was in public. It wasn't just three people who knew about what happened. No, it was tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people that saw his humiliation and were now scrutinizing him and all of his decisions. This was really, really difficult. But David, he doesn't say find someone else. He longs for the nation to be reunited, and so he makes the first move. It's one of the reasons why we know him as a man after God's own heart, because he was a guy who thought and acted like God would in the situation not looking to himself and his own pains and his own hurts, 
but to the good of the nation, the greater good that he could accomplish there. So he made the first move and put himself out there. <sighs> so the question is, will, will we do the same? When that lady hurt us, when that guy trashed our husband, will we do the same? We make the first move to restore peace or will we stubbornly stand there say they have to come to us first. Hmm. When we're in pain like this, usually our natural response is to be more stubborn, more rigid, more firm in our position. And actually our world applauds us for that. They say, yeah, you go girl, you don't be treated like a doormat, right? They think that's so noble of us to be so stubborn. This is not a place where God wants us to be stubborn. Yes, there are places to be stubborn and to be rigid when it comes to truth, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to, you know, the inerrancy of scripture. Yes, be stubborn, be hardcore, be rigid. This is a place where we're supposed to be flexible, pliable, and gracious. In the face of great pain. But we're going to need to have the heart of God in order to accomplish this. That's, this is the only way we can do it. And the heart of God is clearly on display in a passage in Luke. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. But Luke 6.35 shows us what we should be aiming for, okay? Here's what it says. It says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, our people that have hurt us may not be full-blown enemies like this passage is talking about, but in the moment, don't they feel like it? The person who's poking their finger in your eye, doesn't it feel like they're an enemy? And this is what God tells us to do. Do good to them and expect nothing in return. <sighs> this is hard. This is what God wants us to aim for. When we aim for that, we start to diffuse the situation. We begin the healing process that is necessary for us to go move on. We gotta do good and we gotta expect nothing in return. That's what a heart of reconciliation would do. We sacrifice, we're the one who takes the hit instead of saying, I need my payback, I need my pity party. We take the hit. That's what we do when we reconcile. We look for God's greater glory and the greater good in the situation. And because of David's strong desire to reconcile, verse 14 tells us that he swayed the hearts of all the people. His sacrifice, putting a masa in there, going the extra mile there, it made a difference. And it will make a difference in our relationships too when we're ready to make the first move. Now, okay, I can't promise you that every single time you do that, instantly, bing, peace will be restored. I can't tell you that they won't throw it back in your face. I can't promise you that. But I bet many of you could tell stories about times when you sucked it up and you bit the bullet and you went and did it. And all of a sudden you were met with kindness. You were like, whoa, mind blown, right? Okay. Even if it takes a week, even if it takes a month, even if it takes a year, your making the first move will make a difference. And even if not on this earth, a hundred years from now, God will be pleased with you. And it will matter that you had a heart of reconciliation. Um, so we've got to risk bringing peace. We've got to give up our right to be right with our husband or our teenage son <laughs> or that gal who wrote that scathing criticism email to us. Give it up. Have a heart of reconciliation. I know it's painful. Believe me. <laughs> 32 years of ministry, you don't think I know what betrayal feels like? Sometimes it hurts so bad that all you can think of is, I just want to curl up in a ball in the fetal position in my bed and never leave it. That's how bad it hurts. Sometimes it hurts to breathe, but we can't stay there. Okay, I can let you stay there for a day 
okay, two, right? You need to rest. Maybe you need to sleep. You need to have some worship music in the background. Okay, but after that, get up. You've had enough rest. It's time to start the healing process. Can't stay there. Hmm. Well, I know you're wronged. I know you've been wronged. I know you've been hurt. So was David. He was hurt not just by Absalom, like I said. He was hurt by Amasa, the guy he's going to put in charge. He was hurt by the Judah elders that they're out trying to convince to bring him back. And he was hurt by a whole bunch of other friends, family members, citizens, and noblemen that all walked away with Absalom. He was hurt by all of them, and he was definitely wronged, no doubt about it. And yet he's the one who reached out. Well, David's story reminds me of a pastor I read of who um, was out doing a conference. And when you're doing a conference someplace and you're traveling, someone picks you up. Well, the guy who picked him up to do this event was driving a brand new pickup truck. And the two of them bonded immediately. They were both into pickup trucks. And so they were like, oh, sweet truck, right? Okay. And the middle immediately they were laughing about, you know, bumper sticker truisms like, you know, nothing is more beautiful than a man and his truck. Okay, they're not from Southern California, maybe Texas, New Mexico, I don't know, Alabama, some other place. But the, pa the pastor, when he got in, he noticed right away that there were two gigantic gashes, like gouges in the passenger door of his brand new truck. And the pastor's like, whoa, what happened? The man says, oh, the neighbor's basketball pool fell over on it the other day. Oh. And he's like, that's awful. That's terrible. I mean, your truck is so new. I can smell it. It's so new, right? He's like, yeah, but the hardest thing is my neighbor has just decided he's not going to take any responsibility for it. No, just doesn't care. Well, the pastor's like, huh, have you called your insurance company? I mean, how are you going to make this guy pay? And the man said, well, he says, I, after a lot of soul searching, talking to my wife, praying, and thinking about hiring an attorney, it's come down to this. He says, this is what I've realized. I can either be right, or I can be in a relationship with my neighbor. He said, and I realized that my neighbor's going to last a lot longer than my truck. So I decided I'd rather be in a relationship with my neighbor than be right. That guy gets it, doesn't he? He's ready to make the first move when it comes to building a peaceful relationship. So ladies, if you find yourself and you're not feeling particularly strong in your desire to reconcile and make the first move, I would ask you to pray. Take the truth you learned today and beg God to give you a heart like that. It's going to feel like, doing this is going to feel like you've jumped out of an airplane at 10,000 feet and you're falling through space and you're sure that you're about to splat on the earth because you have no parachute with you. But I promise you, if you take that leap, God is the one who will buoy you up. He is the one who will be your parachute. He is the one who will be pleased with you if you're ready to make the first move to restore peace with people. Well, so far, we've initiated towards peace when others didn't come to us, okay? But now it's going to get a little harder because now they're going to drop the confession at your feet. That's what happens next here to David. David and his men are at Gilgal, which is 20 miles from Jerusalem. It's on the banks of the Jordan River. And uh, it's actually a very important spot, which we're reading about in our DBR right now. It's where Joshua gathers everybody together before they go and take the promised land. And they met there to bring David back on purpose. It's a symbolic gesture of we're going to take David into Jerusalem. Well, that's where they're standing when verse 16 happens. Verse 16 says, And Shimei, the son of Girah, the Benjamite from Bahurim hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. They crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Girah, fell down before the Lord as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. 
for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Well, David already made the first move, but now he's going to have to go the extra mile because now a guy is actually coming to him and saying, I've wronged you. Forgive me, which is a whole nother scenario. But what does David do? He forgives him. And that's going to be our point number two. We need to generously forgive the hurt. Generously forgive the hurt. That's what David did. It's dropped at his feet, and he generously forgives the hurt. And again, we say, well, I would forgive them if they would just come to me. Okay, he came to him. Time to forgive. Time to pay up. Hmm. Well, David was wronged in a pretty spectacular fashion by Shimei. And uh, now he's seeking forgiveness, and David's going to have no choice. But let's remember what Shimei did a couple chapters ago. David was running away from Absalom in Jerusalem. He was running out of town, and it was certainly one of the worst days of his life. Maybe not the worst. He had a couple really bad days. This was a bad one, though. And what did Shimei do? He basically kicked him when he was down. I mean, really, that's what he did. He started picking up dirt clods and throwing them at him. He started swearing at him. Then he said, you're a loser. You shouldn't be king. Now, Pastor Mike called him a punk the other day (laughs) from the pulpit. And he was. But it's pretty easy to be a punk and a bully when there's no retaliation right over the horizon. David is shuffling his way out of town. You know, Shimei knows there ain't no punishment coming my way. So it's really easy to be bold in that moment. Not so bold anymore. Now he's running into town because he knows David's back and he better get it together. He's being reinstated as king. So in verse 17, we see Shimei show up and he's got a thousand guys with him. He's trying to tell David, hey, look, I've got all these supporters to throw into your camp. And he rushes up quickly and he flings himself down on the ground and he basically says, please don't remember what I did. Please forget what I did. Um... I'm not sure if that's the kind of confession that you'd like to receive. Just forget everything I did. Now, we're wanting a delineated, right? We want a, you know, five-page document. When someone confesses to us, we want them to tell us each and everything they're sorry for. He doesn't even totally elaborate on what he did that's wrong. He just said, I've done wrong, right? Now, I don't know for sure if he was sincere, but I don't know. When I read between the lines, it doesn't, I'm not sure that he's sincere, But guess what? David's going to forgive him anyway. (laughs) We don't want to do it unless they're sincere, unless they really mean it. That's not how he operates. Okay, we don't know about his sincerity for sure, but we do know something, and that is that ancient kings have killed people for a whole lot less than what Shimei did. In fact, in Exodus 22, 28, expressly forbids the Israelites from cursing or speaking evil of their leaders. He shouldn't have done it. It, it was a big no-no, and he deserved to be punished for it. That's why he hide it, tell, tailed it down there to make sure that huh, he talked to David before the ax came down on him. And in verse 20, he says, I have sinned. He seems to be taking responsibility for it. I don't know. I have my doubts. And he brings his whole bunch of people behind him and then makes sure that David knows when he says, I have come this day and... I am the first of all the house of Joseph to come down and support you. He's kind of laying it on thick, don't you think? I've done this, I've done this. Don't remember, don't remember, just forget. And just like back in chapter 16, Abishai steps up. Abishai is one of David's trusted generals. He steps up and says, can I take him out, David? Okay, well, back in chapter 16, David said no. When he was throwing the rocks and saying, you're a loser, David, he said no because he said, you know, um, maybe I deserve it. Maybe God has sent him. God will take care of it. 
And here, Shimei jumps up and says the same thing. Is now the time? And he says, no, not today. I am the king today. This is a day of celebration. This is not a day for executions. This is a day of, you know, parting because the king is being restored. No, you can't. David is particularly magnanimous here, I think, even though maybe Shimei's sincerity is in question. He still forgives him. And forgiveness is, the word is releasing the debt. He, did, Shimei had racked up some debt against him. He had done serious wrong. But David says, okay, I'm going to forgive that. I'm going to release that person of the debt that they have racked up against me. And releasing isn't just doing this. Releasing is doing this. There's a difference. When you release the debt and really forgive someone, you drop it. You, it, it doesn't come back again. You don't get historic about it the next time that person bugs you. It's gone. It's water under the bridge. It's saying, I will live, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says that when we love people, we keep no record of wrongs. In order to fix what's broken, when it's staring you in the face and being confessed in your face, you have to forgive it. You can't sweep this under the rug. You can't hide from it. I mean, there was actually even a little bit of, I know we don't like it as well when we have to go make the first move, but there's a little bit of peace in that because we can have a really good quiet time before we march over there and make the first move. Do you have any control over when people confess to you? Absolutely not. Boom. On a dime, you got to forgive. There's no hiding behind, give me an hour to get my heart together. It's just there. There's no hesitation. There's no choice. We must forgive. And why do I say that? Because it's all over the Bible, particularly the New Testament. Let me give you a, a few places where the truth of a forgiving, excuse me, a forgiven person is a forgiving person. Let me give you a couple support passages for that. A forgiven person is a forgiving person, okay? Here's one of them. You can see the heart of God right here. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. It says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is not something where we're trying to earn our way to Christ. We're trying to earn our salvation. If we forgive, then God will save us. No, 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 no. It's trying to tell us if we are saved, we will forgive others. And then here's another Colossians 3.13, it's just going to add fuel to the fire. This is the one that says, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Ouch. How's the Lord forgiven you? Completely, utterly, without you ever making a move towards him, right? In the sense, he forgives us when we are his enemies. Christ died for us. Hmm. to that extent. And then don't even get me started about the Matthew 18 story. You know, that's the one where the guy has millions of dollars of debt and he's forgiven. And then he finds another slave who owes him a few thousand dollars and he's joking him and has him in prison because he won't forgive. Remember that story? Here's the punchline of that story. Matthew 18, verse 32 to 35. The guy who's speaking is the one who forgave the millions. He's talking to the guy who wouldn't forgive the little bit. This is what he says. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also your heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Oh, that was Matthew 18, 32 to 35. Ladies, it doesn't matter what they've done to you. It doesn't matter how long they've done it. It doesn't matter what your excuse is. Jesus says you have to release the debt. It's your only choice. You can't hang on to it another minute. You can't make them pay. You can't hold a grudge. You can't resent them. 
not and call yourself a follower of Christ, you can't. Because a forgiven person is a forgiving person. One writer put it like this. When we forgive a debt or an offense, we don't require payment. That would be the opposite of forgiveness. If payment is made for what we lost, there is no need for forgiveness. We have our due. But forgiveness assumes grace. If I am injured, grace lets it go. I don't sue you. I forgive you. Grace gives what someone doesn't deserve. That's why forgiveness has the word give in it. Because forgiveness is not getting even. It's giving away the right to get even. In practical terms, this means you can no longer resent that person at the Christmas dinner table, whether it was your daughter-in-law or your next-door neighbor or your husband who said that unkind thing to you. You've got to let it go and never think about it again. It means that you cannot use the silent treatment with your husband because you don't think that he treated you correctly. And maybe he hasn't for a really long time. You can't withhold forgiveness from him. It means that you can't get bitter and frustrated at your teenager or your college student because they're not making the choices that you think they should. It means that you cannot hold a grudge against your small group leader or that friend of yours who violated your trust and shared something that you told them in confidence. Or someone who was critical against your kid. You can't hold a grudge against them. You have to let it go. You have to release the debt like the Lord released yours. You know, Jesus took all of your sins, every single one of them, and he scooted them over in his journal to a section that says, paid in full. That's what we have to do to every single person's sin against us. Take the sin that they committed and slide it over in your mind to the paid in full column. That's the way he forgave you. That's the way you're called to forgive. And I know you're gonna need God's help for this. You are, we all do. We all need Christ's help desperately in order to have the power to do this. But we have to do it. It's the right thing. And we need his help to have the healing that's gonna need to take place to get over that issue, whatever it is. But if we don't do this, ladies, you realize we're directly disobeying God's command to Christians. Let alone the fact that even if you think back to that story in Matthew 18 and that punchline that I read to you, it said that if you don't, the, the, the guy who wouldn't forgive, it said that he was taken away to the jailers. Do you know another word for jailers is torturers. When you don't forgive them, it's not they who pay the price. It's you who pays the price. You're the one who can't sleep at night. You're the one that the Lord withholds his favor and blessing from. You're the one that he disciplines. You're the one that's tied up in knots every day. You're the one that pays. It's no skin off their back if you don't forgive them. It's all about what it does to you if you don't do what's right there. David generously forgave the hurt in his quest to, forget, to fix what was broken when he went home. Well, we, I want to make sure before we do this, leave this point that I give you a, just what I think is a great story, a great story from Corey Ten Boom. She had a lot to forgive. She was one of those um, concentration camp survivors. And she wrote a lot about forgiveness. And she was expressing once her problem, shall we say, of forgiving someone. And she was talking to her pastor about it. And as they were talking, she, the pastor pointed to the church across the street. And he said, do you see that church? It was a church that had a really tall steeple with a bell tower in the top. And here's what he said to her. He said, up in that tower is a bell that is rung when someone pulls the rope. But you know what? After the rope is released, the bell just keeps on swinging for a while. First it says ding, and then dong, and the bell moves 
slower and slower and slower until there's one final ding before it goes silent forever. He said the same is true of our forgiveness. When we decide to let an offense go, we're simply taking our hands off the rope. He says, but because we've been tugging at those grievances for so long, it shouldn't surprise us there will be angry thoughts that just keep coming back for a while. The ding-dongs of that bell are slowing down. And the same is true of us when we are releasing someone's debt and forgiving them, ladies. The first few days, there's going to be lingering reverberations from our forgiveness, from letting the rope go. But those lingering reverberations will stop if we let go of the rope. Yeah, it's going to be tough the first couple times you see them or the first couple times you hear their name in conversation. But over time, the ding-dong is going to slow down. Until at some point, you're going to wake up and you're going to realize, I, I don't remember the last time I heard that bell go dong. We got to stop ringing the bell. That's what we have to do to generously forgive those who have hurt us. Now, we've done all the initiating so far, and we've done all the forgiving and forgetting. It's a tough day, tough day. But what God does for us is when he trains us up and he puts us through it and we become experts at something, he always gives us a chance to be useful with it. He takes the lessons we've learned and he says, help someone else with this which is what David's going to do next. He's going to be helping someone else. He's going to fix the mess in other people's lives. And starting in verse 24, it says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, he's actually the grandson, right? You know, he's the son of Jonathan. It says, He came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Now remember, David had spared his life. He was one of Saul's descendants and surely would have been executed, uh, but he brought him into the palace. He basically adopted him because he loved Jonathan and he did this for his love for Jonathan. And verse 25 continues. When he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? In other words, how come you didn't follow me when Absalom was chasing me? Why did you bail on me, Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth replies in verse 26, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself and I will ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. Remember, Mephibosheth was dropped as a baby by his nurse when they were fleeing. When Saul and Jonathan had died in battle and they were fleeing to get away, he was dropped and he is handicapped at this point. And he sends Ziba, his servant, out to saddle a donkey for him to go with David. And Ziba abandons him. Okay. Verse 27, he says, he, that is Ziba he's talking about here, has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. When David fled from Jerusalem, Ziba shows up all of a sudden with a whole bunch of provisions and a bunch of donkeys, which, by the way, he stole from Mephibosheth to do that, and he pledges his allegiance to David. Now, when David says, hey, where's your master? Where's Mephibosheth? He says, oh, you know, he didn't want to come with you. He, you know, wants to be king, and, you know, he was Saul's descendant, so he's trying to get the kingship back, so he just bailed on you. And here he is now defending himself. Mephibosheth is defending himself. Verse 27, he tells David what he really thinks of him when he says, but you're like an angel of God to me. You have been so kind to me. You've adopted me into your family. He says, do therefore what seems good to you, or I trust you, my life is in your hands. Verse 28, for all my father's house were but men doomed to die before my lord the king. Or because he was Saul's descendant, he only planned, he assumed he'd be executed for that. But you have set your servant among those who will eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? I deserve nothing. And you gave me a home. I'm indebted to you. And in verse 29, David says, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. If David had any questions about his loyalty, it's all been dissolved right here. Now, David had given Mephibosheth all of Saul's property at first. Then, 
when Ziba comes and brings all this stuff to him when he leaves Jerusalem, then he takes all that's Mephibosheth's and he gives it to Ziba and says, you're now loyal to me. I'll give it to you. And now at this point, he takes that all back and he gives them both half and they divide it, which is kind of a head scratcher. I'm with you there. I read a lot of commentaries. I'm still scratching my head, but whatever. He split it up, okay? Um, And in verse 30, Mephibosheth says to the king, let him take it all. Let him take it all since my Lord, the king, has come back safely. I don't care about any of it. I'm just so glad you're here. Look at the heart of Mephibosheth. He's not even worried about what he has. And I see a little bit of difference between Shimei and Mephibosheth, don't you? He's like falling all over himself here to show how much he loves the king. Yeah, it's a different kind of heart. So there's an interesting little story in this mop-up operation here with Mephibosheth and Ziba. The troublemaker is gone, but there's chaos and people are gonna need a little help to muddle their way through it. That's what David does next. He becomes a peacemaker. That's what you and I need to do too. And that is number three, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker all around. Be a peacemaker all around. David jumped in the fray and became a peacemaker between these two guys. Sometimes I think we think, well, my life's hard or I'm forgiving people and I'm having a tough times and I've been betrayed and all this stuff and I just don't have time and effort to worry about other people's issues. I have an excuse. Well, David didn't have an excuse. He was still helping people in need. He didn't throw up his hands and say, I'm not gonna help people because I have my own problems. He got busy helping people. He got his hands dirty to help minimize the damage in their lives, even in the midst of his own struggle. So let's take a look at what's happening to Mephibosheth. It says that he's basically completely distraught. He's so upset when David has to leave town. He's so upset that Absalom has, you know, had this whole coup and betrayed his his dad, the guy that Mephibosheth loves. Then he's upset because he goes to go with him and his servant abandons him and takes off, literally takes off with his ride and he's left there. Everybody's gone, but all Absalom's guys. I mean, that must have been torturous for a guy who was loyal to David to still be sitting in the, in the palace while everybody else was gone. It says he's so grieving so much that he's doing a lot of funny things. One is he's not taking care of his feet. Now, okay, there's a lot of ideas. What does this mean? Is he not clipping his toenails? Okay, all I can say is this wasn't in the commentaries, but having, had, having a daughter who is handicapped and has feet problems, I assume this probably means more than he didn't trim his toenails, okay? Whatever part on your body doesn't work right needs some maintenance. You need to do a little medical treatment on it. I think he gave up taking care of himself medically, the issue that he had, okay? That's, that's just a me thing, okay? He didn't trim his beard, he didn't take a shower, he didn't change his clothes, he's so bummed, he's completely distraught from the time David left Jerusalem. But to his credit, he does not rant about Ziba. He explains it, he moves on, and he talks mostly about David and how good he was and how happy he is to be part of his group and have him back. And David, of course, sees that he doesn't need to explain anymore. He's loyal. Mephibosheth is back in his good graces and he gives half of his stuff to him. And he brokers peace between these two people. He smooths things over and Mephibosheth ends up praising him and saying, my life is in your hands. Do whatever you want. I'm just so excited you're here. That's how this ends up. There's a lot of contentious days out there on the horizon for us Christians. A lot of days where there's gonna be a lot of pain, betrayal, and frustration. And we're gonna need each other to help broker peace. You know, we're going to need each other to step up and get our hands dirty and messy in each other's lives. That's what Jesus would have us do. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says that we should be aiming for restoration. Then he says, comfort one another, agree with other, live in peace. But he says, aim for restoration. So we need to be doing with one another. But there's no magic wand. There's no magic pill. There's no magic formula that I could give you to just whoop. This is all going to be done. It's, it's, it's on a case-by-case basis. But you're going to have to get involved in people's lives. You're going to have to prayerfully and hopefully wisely muddle your way through it with people. It's all different. 
And we need to take our cues from people like David, who did it in this passage, and also another Bible hero, Bible hero named Abraham. He came across a skirmish, and it was Lot's servants and his servants, and they were fighting over land back in Genesis 13. David doesn't, or excuse me, Abraham doesn't run away, doesn't say, yeah, let's have somebody else deal with it. No, he goes down there and he gets in the mix. He listens to what's going on and he offers some solutions. Now, he could have demanded some things. I mean, Abraham is the oldest guy in the clan. He's the leader of the clan. And he is the guy that God's talking to every day. (laughs) But he still walks in there and he offers lot servants and lot a solution. He says, okay, we're going to have to split up. So, you know, if you remember the story, he says, do you want to take this piece of land or do you want to take this piece of land, Lot? And of course, Lot, unfortunately, the snotty-nosed nephew who's completely self-absorbed says, I'm going to take the best part for myself. And he does. And Abraham says, okay, no problem. And he takes the worst piece. But God ends up favoring Abraham, of course, because he's a guy who's willing to broker peace. He's a guy who's willing to look at the bigger picture and trust himself to the Lord. And God takes care of that. So God wants us to be a willing participant in brokering peace with others too. How do we do it? Um, These are not ABC. I'm just going to give you a huge list and you take what you can get, okay? The first is you've got to care. You've got to care for people. And I mean really care for them, okay, through this process. Your heart needs to beat for them. You also need to be a listening ear for them. You need to hear what's going on. What are they telling you is happening? Pay attention. You got to be a person who thinks objectively. You know, when you're in a conflict situation, You cannot see the forest for the trees because you're so emotionally bound up in it. You need someone who can see from the outside. Be that person that can see from the outside. Think objectively for them. You need to be someone who brings them wise counsel, (laughs) spiritual common sense, biblical wisdom. Give them some wise counsel. You also need to be somebody who prays and prays and prays some more for them. They're going to need a ton of prayer to get through this thing. You're also going to need to be someone who holds them accountable. I mean, they're going to make plans, they're going to have strategies, they're going to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It, being, holding them accountable means circling back and making sure they're actually doing what you guys all talked about and decided to do. And then I'm going to end it again the same way I started, and that is that you've got to really care. You've got to care, care, care for them. These are just some things that you can do when you're a peacemaker. What do they need from you? These are the kinds of things that they need to help them build bridges with people instead of walls. Peacemaking is a lot of work. It's a lot of messy, hard work. But frankly, someone has to do it. And it's really cool because God gives us a promise in the Bible for those who are willing to step into people's lives and do this hard reconciling thing between people. In Matthew 5, 9, it's from the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed means happy, satisfied, content. A person who's a peacemaker has that kind of heart. They're pleasing to the Lord and he brings that satisfaction. And then he promises they shall be called sons of God. They're gonna have a reputation of being like God, being a godly person. A person who's willing to work in other people's messes is going to be known as a godly person with a good reputation in our community. God is pleased with those who don't shy away but who lovingly jump in just like the good Samaritan did, by the way and was, you know, ready to work on messy situations. Well, have you ever wondered what happens when the war is over and peace breaks out? Huh. I read a story this week about the last few days of the Civil War. And uh, on the last few days of the Civil War, General Lee marched his exhausted troops up to a place called Appomattox, Virginia. It was April 8, 1965. 1965. <laughs> Praise the Lord, it wasn't 1965. <laughs> April 8, 1865. The day before, General Grant had written a letter to Lee and said to him, maybe it's time to think about the South surrendering. Well, Lee, of course, refused, and he said, I do not think the emergency has arisen to call for the surrender of my army. 
but he offered to meet Grant as Grant had asked him to the next morning at 10 o'clock in the morning out on the edges of the battlefield. And all that day and all that night and the next morning, Lee was out there watching what was happening. He had his you know, field glasses, his binoculars, and he was watching the battle. And uh, he finally decided there was nothing left for me to do but to go and see General Grant, but I would rather die a thousand deaths, Lee said. But he did make it over to see Grant that day. And as he stood in front of him, he asked him this. He said, first he said, we are pressed and we are ready to surrender. And he said, here's the question. What are your terms? What are you gonna make me do? Well, surprisingly, I did not know this. Surprising me, there were no trials, there were no prison sentences, and there was no payment schedule of how are you gonna pay off this war debt? Did you know that? Not like World War I, not like World War II, where countries that we defeated, we made them pay over years. Not when brother fought against brother. This is what Grant said. He said, here's my terms. They're simple. Stop fighting and start living. He said, I want you to lay down your weapons. I want you to go home to your wives, to your children, to your homes, to your farms. I want you to plant your seed, and I want you to grow crops, and I want you to start living. That was the terms of peace. That's all it was. That was astonishing to me. And yet that's what happens when brother fights against brother, and they decide the fight is over. You just stop, and you start living again. And the soldiers who had no food that day were given meals, meals to get them home, in fact. They were given horses. They were given mules so they could sow seed in their fields. And they were let go. The generals, the soldiers, they were let go to go back to their homes and live their lives. Stop fighting, start living. Ladies, we've got to be ready to reconcile, to make the first move. We have to be ready to forgive even those horrible hurts as they're confessed to us. And we have to be ready to help other people and be peacemakers in their lives. We have to stop fighting and we have to start living. Let's pray. God, I know that this message, frankly, is pretty easy for some people here. They're not dealing with anything right this minute. They can't even think of something right this minute. Um, that's great. I'm happy for them. But there are others here that are bearing a huge load. And uh, you know who they are. My heart grieves for them because I know this message was way harder for them. And uh, they have to go deal with the truth that you gave them, the truth bomb you just landed in their lap. Um, God, I pray that their friends and their small group leaders would come around them and I, I, I do pray, Lord, please don't let small group be a time where all these people that are dealing with all this stuff just dump on each other. That is not what this is for. I pray, Lord, that we would even see as we look across in people's eyes that this message was um, tough for them. We would be the one who starts praying for them immediately as we see that in their eyes. They don't have to say a word, but we know it, that we'd start praying for them that we'd make sure we go by and give them a hug on the way out and, and make sure that they know we're praying for them. And God, there will be some people that need to be a peacemaker and get involved, don't get me wrong, but I don't think a setting of 20 women there dumping is the right setting. But Lord, I do pray that you would help the people here who need the most help with them, with this. I pray that you would heal them. I pray that Satan would not be able to convince them to say, she wasn't talking about me. God wouldn't want me to do this. She just doesn't get it. You get it, God. And um, this message is from you, just the messenger. Thank you for the example of David. He was hurt unbelievably, unbelievably. And yet he was so forgiving. Thank you for his example. But thank you most of all for Jesus' example. Talk about a person who was unbelievably hurt and betrayed by every one of us. Thank you for his example and how he loves us enough to forgive us.
I pray, Lord, that this message would continue on. People would continue to apply it to their lives because it's truth. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.